20 years ago, Bill Joy talked about the eight fallacies of distributed computing. These are things such as the network is reliable, and latency is zero, and bandwidth is infinite. And these fallacies are even more relevant today. With the popularity of Docker containers and the networks of distributed systems that we deal with, things have become even more complex, and the fallacies keep coming up, they're still relevant, and with this growing complexity comes new problems and new fallacies. Weaveworks is a company building simple, reliable ways to manage containers and microservices. The CEO of Weaveworks, Alexis Richardson, joins the show today to discuss how Weave uses convergent replicated data types to manage distributed systems. The use of the CRDT data structure is in contrast to the use of algorithmically managed Paxos or Raft-based distributed systems strategies. Our conversation also touches on the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is similar to the Apache Foundation, but for cloud-native application technologies. Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors for Q3. If you're interested in having your company sponsor Software Engineering Daily, uh, please send me an email at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, always I appreciate it when you share it on Facebook or Twitter. The show grows by word of mouth. So you can also just send me an email to give me some feedback or say hi. I always love hearing from people who listen to the show. Alexis Richardson is the co-founder of Weaveworks. Alexis, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi there, Jeff. Great to meet you. Weave allows us to build a resilient network of containers, and we will get into that discussion. But I want to start by talking more generally just about distributed systems in general. What are the characteristics of a reliable production distributed system? I think there's lots of different definitions of reliable, but I think that the most important is that uh, when a user wishes to execute an action, that action is always possible, and uh, if it fails to complete, it should do so in a manner that makes sense to the user. So 20 years ago, Bill Joy was talking about the eight fallacies of distributed computing, and these are things like the network is reliable, latency is zero, bandwidth is infinite, there are another you know five or six fallacies, and these fallacies are still relevant today. Are there any new fallacies of distributed computing that have become widely believed in recent years? So, Jeff, that's a really great question. Uh, Modern myths of distributed computing. I mean, I think the myths never really go away. They keep coming back in new forms. But my favorite today that I think is really crucial is this idea that a lot of applications can be built by selecting a some kind of platform, whether it's a container platform or a cloud and container platform or a PaaS, and then everything will be kind of be taken care of for you by this platform. And you just have to write the application and it will figure out how to deal with the hard problems of distributed computing for you. Uh, and that is kind of a eight myths in a box uh, level of wrongness. It's just not true. And that is why um, so many applications continue to be written using um, infrastructure and services rather than a uh, aggregated set of platform components out of the box. Um, and I think that will remain true for, for a while, until, uh, at least until the point where people stop building different types of application and all build the same kind of application like a web app or something. Maybe then it will be uh, standardized. But today, I think it's uh, true. 
Yeah. Okay. I think that's a great answer. So another, you know, I think I totally agree with what you said. Uh, the the fallacy, the eight fallacies in a box platform answer. There's also this this thing. I think when we talk about tools that are useful for managing distributed state, we have these things like etcd and console and Zookeeper, and all of these tools use a consensus algorithm like Paxos or Raft, and they have strong consistency guarantees. And I think we've, you know, over time, we've kind of uh, taught, got, gotten used to these things as being having a tight mapping to how we think about distributed systems. Are, are there some pros and cons of this, uh, this model of distributed state management systems where we're using etcd and console and zookeeper and have these uh, you know, stronger guarantees about consistency? Absolutely, there are pros and cons. And uh, if you have been doing computing for a while, um, we are in the consensus algorithm um, era, very much recapitulating the um, fascination with distributed transactions that took place in the 1990s, which were introduced as a mechanism for delivering uh, a certain kind of reliability for a large-scale system, um, in other words, a distributed system, and which... uh, you know, got people into trouble because they didn't always understand when to use them and how to use them. And people would people would end up using them all the time or not at all, which is not a bad. Uh, <laughs> sorry, which is uh, which is not a good thing. Uh, using them all the time is a very bad thing because uh, you know you have uh, think resources getting locked up and people walking away from the transaction, which then have to be uh, dealt with. And not using them at all can be bad because sometimes you do need strong consistency. And the cons- the move to consensus based algorithms is definitely improved things and one thing i would say to people is you know don't write your own consensus based algorithm um the implementations of paxos and raft that are out there are good and uh zookeeper etcd console uh, respectively for paxos raft and raft and there are other things out there too those are good solutions for um for, the, for doing consensus this is not a good idea to implement your own or uh, you know or, re, or reinvent the algorithm How, having said that the, there is a high performance penalty to getting consensus among a large number of, you know, let's say three or more actors on a network, um, it, which uh, is too high to pay inside every single transaction. And so what we find is that, um, you know, it's not a good idea to use consensus all the time. And then you have to decide when not to use consensus. And um, there are some things, other things that can go wrong um, when using consensus all the time. For example, um, in order to maintain consistency, if there was a network partition, then typically a uh, state that is in quarit or, or the subsystem that is in quarit will deny reads or writes uh, on the part of the user um, in order to maintain consistency when the, when the two partitions re- reconnect. And another approach to this, which is the one that uh, you know we favor and is used, used by things like Global DNS, actually, and is used by Amazon for S3 and, and many other large-scale systems, is an eventually consistent model. And that's something that we use inside our network and our service discovery tool. And the advantage of this is you know, it's partition-tolerant. It gives the user highly available access all the time, and it, it sorts out... Um, inconsistencies using a uh, merge-based system uh, based on CRDTs. 
Right. And in contrast to Paxos and Raft, this solves the the problem of consensus management by a data structure centric approach. The you know, Paxos and Raft is like this algorithmic approach to uh, you know, constantly getting a quorum around the state of your data. And with CRDTs, you're more, instead of, uh, you know, involving everybody in the network and trying to get this quorum, you just have this data structure that you try to, uh, that you try to maintain and, and propagate throughout the network over time. And that data structure is the CRDT, this convergent replicated data type. Could you give a simple example for how a CRDT works? <laughs> um. I'm probably not the right person to answer this question. Um, it works. I mean, you know, if you'll accept a hand-waving, not quite right answer. That's the only answer. Uh, type of answer I accept, actually. Okay, very good. In that case, we're good to go. Um, it works like GitHub. I mean, you know, everybody intuitively understands that the GitHub model is one which supports uh, multiple version concurrency and it, it enables merges if they take place on independent pieces of code. Um, so it's quite difficult to get inconsistent merges in a large-scale system on GitHub if you have a small number of programmers because they're working on different things. And, uh, you know, CRDTs are based on this, the same idea that uh, you can uh, bring together two different sets of changes on a common set of data provided there on uh, different things. And even if they're on the same thing, then uh, there is a set of rules you can follow which will help you, which will help you out. So now that we have some background into the uh, you know the way that Weave looks at distributed systems, let's talk some about the Weave products. And I think one simple place to start is Weave DNS. Could you explain what a DNS service does and what Weave DNS does that's different? Sure. So Weave DNS is based on Weave Mesh, which is our underlying system for um, handling these distributed systems uh, in an eventually consistent way. And I should stress before I talk about DNS that, you know, we're not saying to people don't use consensus at all. We're saying to people in the cases where you don't need consensus, here's a really good tool to use, which will give you the level of consistency that you need in those cases. Um, so that you don't have to use consensus all the time. You don't need to, oh, a good developer should never have just one tool in their box. Okay. And we actually use consensus and strong consistency ourselves. In another case, we'll come to in a minute. Now, with DNS as a service discovery tool, it all it does is it maintains a very fast uh, distributed set of um, service names uh, using a DNS API to query them uh, across the system, which means that uh, everybody who is using WeaveNet um, once their app or their container has been granted IP addresses, can give them a service name in an intuitive way without having to learn any new technology. And that is more than enough for a lot of service discovery cases. The um, difference between this and regular DNS is regular DNS is something which updates very slowly. It's there to support the global internet. Uh, you know, we've optimized our implementation so that it's suitable for service discovery cases. The um, one thing to bear in mind is that uh, if you're using a DNS-based system for um, service discovery, you want to make sure that the IP addresses are, are persistent, by which I mean that they, you know, if you get an IP address back from DNS as the service address, then you can keep on using that IP address. Otherwise, you have to make a lookup every time. So uh, we solved that problem using using other techniques, but uh, 
at, at its root, WeaveDNS is a fast, high-performance, optimized DNS system, which is highly resilient because it's based on WeaveMesh, which is an eventually consistent model. Is there something about DNS and service discovery that has fundamentally changed since containers have started becoming popular and in wide use? Um, there's a lot of confusion about this stuff. I mean, number one, there's confusion about whether you need to have a strongly consistent model. Uh, number two, there's a, a lot of people kind of overuse these tools for things. Um, but I think that other than that, you know, actually what we're seeing with containers, and it's been said before by others, is a move back to the computing models of the past uh, in a good way. So, uh, you know, with a container, you're essentially dealing with a machine. It's just a, it's just a kind of portable kind of virtual machine. And, you know, what you want to do is deal with um, setting up that machine in as simple a way as possible. And the simplest way possible is all of that amazing technology that was developed between the 70s and the 90s for managing machines like networks and storage and service discovery and all of those good things. And, you know, that means that what you don't need to worry about is a whole load of other kind of stuff that was invented later in the era of Java that sort of sits on top of machines about, you know, JVMs and APIs and transaction models, all of which is great, but you actually don't need it for a lot of, a lot of applications. So, um, yeah. So, Weave DNS is just one component of what WeaveWorks, the company that you co-founded, is working on. So, now that listeners kind of are getting an idea for the kinds of problems that you're working on, explain what Weave is. Like, what is your company, WeaveWorks, doing? So, WeaveWorks is essentially delivering a complete stack uh, for people who want to build microservices applications focusing on solving problems independent of the choice of container and the choice of orchestration tool. What are the main products that WeaveWorks is building to achieve this goal of allowing basically anybody to, to build microservices? So Weave is building a complete tool chain for microservices uh, designed for developers and develop, DevOps teams who want to build microservices very quickly, want to understand the new patterns and um, have help from the uh, tooling to make to enable them to do that. Patterns like you know, blue-green, canary, tracing, uh, flow management segmentation, and so on. And in our tooling, the key idea is that you know, we're not telling you which container to use and we're not telling you which orchestrator to use. So we are focusing on working uh, with the grain of Docker, Kubernetes, uh, DCOS from Mesosphere, and other, other tools like Amazon ECS, for example. And in our approach, you know, you, it's, it's very much due to the, the, the way the technology is designed that we can do this. You, know, you choose your platform, and in many cases, you're going to have multiple platforms. One might be a Mesosphere, one might be a Kubernetes, one might be a Docker. And you can, you can build applications in a, in a faster, simpler, and more consistent manner and still run them on these platforms, uh, which is, I think, very beneficial to end users who want um, help building these types of applications. And that breaks down into you know, key areas of functionality, and you see those in our open source pro products like WeaveScope, for example, which is a monitoring and visualization tool, or WeaveNet, which gives you networking and service discovery and so on. So let's talk about WeaveNet in more detail. And WeaveNet creates a virtual network that connects Docker containers together. So 
why do I need this? Like, I thought this is something that is covered by Kubernetes or or Mesosphere, or I'm sorry, Mesos or ECS. I thought that these container orchestration systems took care of this thing. Why do I need WeaveNet to create a virtual network between my Docker containers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a great question. WeaveNet should be used with other platforms because it delivers better networking in key use cases. Uh, sometimes, for example, when you need a feature that WeaveNet provides that isn't provided by many, many platforms and networks. And one of the ones that we keep running into today is, for example, multicast. Multicast does not work easily in cloud environments. You usually have to um, synthesize it yourself. And we've been able to do that and embed that into WeaveNet so that if you have a multicast-based application, e.g. for discovery or uh, instrumentation or market data if you're in finance, then WeaveNet will take care of it. One of, our, one of our largest customers, the International Securities Exchange, a big options trading uh, exchange out of New York, um, now part of the NASDAQ actually, uh, uses it to distribute their market data onto Amazon Cloud and into a big financial data center that they run because uh, WeaveNet enabled multicast out of the box and they could run their existing technology over WeaveNet in a way that uh, was just easier and, and still high-performance uh, than what, whatever everything else they tried. So, so one answer to your question is there are some things that we do that other people just don't do. And another one is there's more general cases where you know having control over the network yourself is advantageous, and that's when you want to use it instead of whatever the platform is providing. And so you're talking about these things that are different in WeaveNet or in Weave that are uh, they're different in the uh, the platforms themselves. One way I think maybe connects back to the the previous conversation we had about CRDTs is that all the other Docker networking plugins require setting up this central database like Console or Zookeeper. How does WeaveNet contrast with this? So. With WeaveNet, because the consistency model is baked into the product itself through an eventually consistent, highly resilient mesh, you don't need to set up an external store to, 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 to look after all your metadata in the network. Whereas with some other um, networks and platform network uh, implementations, they do things like putting all of the network metadata into etcd. Which means that, um, for example, if there's a network partition, uh, in the case of Docker, there are no reads and writes on the minority side, which means in turn that uh, that network will completely freeze up and no one will know what's going on, which is a, essentially an unreliable solution. Now, in fairness to the implementers, um, no doubt they'll think of ways to solve this problem later. They're focusing on a more tightly coupled scenario at the beginning where partitions will be very rare. Fair enough. I, don't do, I have, do not object to that. But I do think that it's worth bearing in mind that it's much better to have a single thing that could go wrong than to have two or more things that could go wrong. And I think that's a fundamental difference between WeaveNet and many other networking implementations that, that you'll see out there. And you, if, you're a, if you're a buyer or, or if you're a technology decision maker, one of the top questions you should ask the vendor is, how do you deal with this? You know, what happens if things go wrong? And can, can I get caught out in this way? One conversation that I see around the WeaveNet product is that, like, today, most of 
you know, if I've got some container stack, probably all of my containers are in Kubernetes running on Google Compute Cloud, or all of them are in Mesos running on Amazon, or they're on ECS running on Amazon, and they're all in this box. But tomorrow, I may want to have some of my containers in Kubernetes, some of them on ECS, some of them in Mesos. And my sense is that WeaveNet is going to be this communication layer that is reliable, that is the the best choice to use to communicate between containers on these different platforms. Is that accurate? Is that positioning accurate? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that's when I said earlier that we're offering a complete tool chain for microservices independent of the choice of orchestrator. What we have in mind is customers who might, for example, be using Amazon ECS for their Amazon-based apps, Kubernetes on EC2 or somewhere else for, for other reasons, and, and, and Docker Swarm in, in many, many, many cases, because Docker Swarm is a good tool as well. Um, so what happens if you want these applications to communicate? Wouldn't it be great if you had a, either one consistent approach to networking or if they were even on one network, which could stretch across, for example, multiple data centers securely. And WeaveNet does that, which makes it basically an awesome tool for those cases. And so that was the other reason I was going to earlier with the why, why is WeaveNet better. One is it has specific functionality it supports, and the other is it's, it's just really amazing and flexible and simple in these, in these kind of cases that you might care about down the road. So I do want to talk some about this macro picture. You know, We have Kubernetes and Mesos and Amazon ECS Docker Swarm, the list goes on for these platforms that are trying to be the the thing that you build all of your infrastructure on. And I love to ask guests what their perspective is, how these services actually differ from one another. And uh, like, is the future, what does the future look like? So g- give me your perspective. Like, why are these... Why are there all these platforms that it seems like there's like significantly overlapping functionality? Right. I mean, this is a really interesting question. I think this kind of gets to the heart of of, uh, questions people should be asking about the industry as a whole. It's all very well differentiating on features, but but candidly and frankly, the typical user is not going to care about that. They're going to care about the core 80% of features being implemented well. And those features will be the same on each of the main platforms. Now, they might be implemented in different ways, and there might be advantages to to doing them one way or another way uh, across the development and operations spectrum. No question about that. But but when it, when it comes down to it, the core features will be, you know, starting and stopping multiple containers, maintaining n replicas, that kind of thing. And uh, you know that means there's going to be essentially an implied common model across these platforms, and that will be the model that most applications use. So actually, um, you know, you would then ask, well, shouldn't shouldn't we be thinking of this as part of the furniture and a, a commodity layer? And I think that's what's ultimately going to happen, is that those that core eighty percent of functionality will will commoditize, and uh, therefore, ultimately, the people who will make the most money out of it will be people who can uh, build a cloud type revenue stream out of it, which will be number one, the public cloud providers, and number two. And I wish the luck with this. Companies like Docker, Mesosphere, and uh, some of the Kubernetes players may be able to do this. Well, so when we talk about commodities, like when I think about commodities markets, like I think about the oil market. And one interesting thing about the oil market is that it is this commodity, but actually it's a commodity market where there are all these different players that have slightly differentiated offerings because the market is so gigantic and it does have 
specific needs. Like different users have different specific needs of the types of oil that they want, like at what level of refinement they want. Is this going to really be a winner-take-all market where you know the, there's there's one commodity provider that 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 it just wins everything, or is it going to be where like some people want Kubernetes, some people want Mesos, some people want ECS, some people want Docker Swarm because of very real and tangible reasons that may or may not be visible right now? Right. So I'm not sure if saying that DCOS or Mesosphere or Mesos are, are the same as Kubernetes and, and Swarm is is quite the right way to look at it. Okay. I think, and that's probably my fault. I mean, I was doing that too earlier on. I think there are things like Marathon, uh, which sit on top of uh, DCOS or, or Mesos, which uh, are, um, you know, which are more like perhaps Kubernetes in their aspiration. And, and I think Mesos is fundamental uh, design center is a little bit lower down the stack than uh, Kubernetes. Nonetheless, uh, you know, in, in the large, these are trying to do similar things. Um, I think the market is going to sustain at least two, possibly three different technologies here, um, just in, you know, commodity open source infrastructure, just because there are different scaling issues that you run into um, that you want to optimize for in different ways. And if you talk to the Mesos teams, they will very much talk about sorting, you know, they're kind of, the thing that drives them is very large-scale data-driven applications, whereas I think, you know, what drives Docker, Docker came out of the PaaS world, and it started off with applications that are PaaS-type applications, and it's generalized since then. And, you know, Kubernetes is a mixture of the two because that's what uh, you have in Google's data centers, and that's where Kubernetes' original design came from as well. So they're starting from three very, very different places, and uh, I think they could all end up doing the same thing, or they could specialize, and I I honestly wouldn't want to predict um, what will happen there. And I certainly think there's room for multiple implementations based on different special cases and, and strengths and weaknesses, no question. Absolutely. Okay. So, but there, there is one prognostication that you were willing to make that I heard in a podcast interview. Um, and this is a really interesting point. And this, the podcast is the Cloudcast for people who are curious. Uh, it's a great podcast. And on this podcast, you drew an analogy between Docker, the company Docker, their business strategy, and how VMware's business has evolved. And I thought this was really interesting because I hadn't, I hadn't heard anybody else draw this parallel before. Could you explain the parallel between how, what, how you see Docker, the company, evolving and how VMware currently looks today, how their business model has evolved? Well, one of the great things about making predictions about the future is that you can make different ones every time people ask you these questions. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that the market allowed VMware to create a monopoly in the virtual data center, which was unexpected because the, when virtualization was first created in the nineties as a, it was the rebirth of virtualization. Obviously it was originally a mainframe technology. Many people thought it wouldn't be possible, wouldn't be useful at the level of commodity computing, you know, mom and pop's desktop or the small business data center, and VMware proved everybody totally wrong, and it took the, the rest of the world quite a long time to realize what was going on. Consequently, VMware ended up with sort of 70 or 80% of the mainstream enterprise workloads in the data center, and that is what's called a stranglehold. Um, it became very frustrating for everybody else uh, who wanted to bring, who wanted to innovate on that layer because they would have to use VMware's APIs and technology 
And um, some people tried to do things like using KVM or Zen. And ultimately, Amazon, for example, you know, used an open source virtual machine and forked it. Um, you know, Microsoft took a long time getting Hyper-V to market and then built Azure on top of that, I believe, although that may be not quite right. So <clears throat> nobody wants that to happen again. And what you could you could argue that the attempt to remove the VMware of a monopoly through open source virtualization failed, but the attempt to remove the VMware monopoly uh, through a different approach to componentization and automation a more general problem uh, through containers will succeed because uh, there are enough benefits to switching technologies. That was always the problem is if I get rid of VMware VMs and switch to an open source VM, what are, what are the reasons I should do that? And there, were never, there was never enough reason to change. You know, Even if the open source technology achieved parity, many customers wouldn't be ready to change. It would require effort. It would require risk. But moving to containerization has material benefits in terms of portability across different implementations of clouds and VMs and capacity management. So you can actually build applications out of containers, which, believe me, you could never really do with VMs properly. And so there is enough reason to change. And so they've got this incredible line of attack on the whole virtualization market. And the the thing that's driving a lot of what Docker is doing is to create tools that application developers can use, which are going to accelerate that change. But ultimately, what, what is being sold and be, being bought by companies and customers of Docker is you know, an operation-centric solution for the data center, which is something that can replace or sit on top of or complement or gradually disrupt, take your pick, you know, VMware vCenter. And so what is the, you know, I see this tension here because like you've got Docker, this company, and then Docker, this open source tool that everybody is using and building their own platforms on. And I don't know, it's interesting because it's like, what, how, like how, how does this shape up? And, and it's, you know, we, we haven't even talked about the CNCF, which you are a part of, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is this um, organization that is kind of tr- trying, trying to create harmony in this space. Um, but as a, as a member of the CNCF, how do you look at this tension between the fact that Docker is this technology that everybody is building on top of, and yet simultaneously Docker is a business that probably has aspirations to own as much of this space as possible? Well, going back to your previous point about commodities and oil... I think it's worth noting that the word commodity is used to describe many different things. Um, in the oil markets, uh, oil is a commodity based on price. You know, the price is an international oil price set according to a number of benchmarks. And then uh, all the different kinds of oil are different ways of delivering against that common price. So, uh, you know, you might pay more if, for example, you have to ship the oil a long way to actually get to it. Whereas in other markets, uh, notably food, uh, the commodities are not fungible, so you have things like different, completely different types of wheat, and and the, the the wheat markets are not coupled to say the orange orange juice markets. And so, you know, the we talk about food being a commodity or wheat being a commodity, but actually it's not a commodity in the same sense that oil is based on price. So, what does that mean for us in terms of computers and containers and virtual machines? I think when people talk about CPU. That, is a, that, that can be a commodity similar to oil or electricity. In other words, it's a commodity based on price. 
And the question is only about what's the cost of delivery against that price of the physical goods. In the case of containers and applications, I think you're going to see differentiation. So, uh, you know, Docker may be incredibly successful with solving a certain class of problems that look like the ones that they started out doing because that's their core strength, whereas other players may be successful in other areas. And I think what everyone will do is, is actually... Um, include these technologies in larger solutions, which ultimately um, may play more into the hands of people who are capital rich, like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and you know others like IBM and so on, the cloud providers. So therefore, I think although Google, uh, Docker may look like they wish to own everything, I think in realistically, if you if you got if you got the leadership of Docker around the table for a beer, they would admit that you know. Like a peacock, they've got to look a lot bigger and more handsome than than they really are. But actually, even if they got a you know significant share of this market, it would just be an amazing win for them. Mm. So, as a member of the CNCF, and you have all these different big players that are involved uh, in these technologies that CNCF is kind of stewarding over. What is the role of the CNCF? What are you trying to do and how do you mediate the conversations between these different companies, like a conversation between Google and Docker, for example? Like, how do you prevent acrimony and, um, and, and I don't know, stalling uh, in these communities? Or, or what is the role of the CNCF as an arbitrator there? So the CNCF could try to be an arbitrator between these different competing interests, uh, but actually isn't necessarily seeking to do that. It's, it's not trying to find areas where we disagree and focusing on those in order to, to see if we can actually agree. I think that is what a standards body does, and I think that's, that's, that characterizes the OCI, the Open Container Initiative, which is a genuine attempt to standardize certain definitions around container implementations and specs such that uh, people can talk about a standard container. And the way that works is you, you, you go, okay, um, do we all agree on the standard container def- definition? And then the answer is no, we do not agree. And then you say, okay, what are the areas we do, don't agree? Let's fix those. And that's where you, um, you encourage disagreement and, and then try to resolve it. With the CNCF, we're not taking that approach. We're not trying to be a standards body or a kingmaker. What we're instead we're trying to do is find areas where we all agree uh, there are good technologies that people should be using in this new cloud-native environment that we all are trying to engender. So Weaveworks, Coros, Google, Mesosphere, Docker, Cisco, and the, the other and joint now, of course, Samsung, the others who are involved, you know, we, we agree on lots of things. And, and a good example is the introduction of Prometheus into the CNCF. You know, Prometheus is a monitoring tool which also embeds a time series database, which is queryable for analytics. Um, what a great tool. It's designed for a dynamic cloud-native type environment. It's designed originally within companies that uh, SoundCloud that uh, represent the type of architectures that cloud-native is all about. The, you know, running some stuff on Amazon stuff, some stuff in-house, moving things around and so on. And so this is a, a tool which you know everybody in the TOC could very quickly agree would be useful to all customers, no matter whether they're using Docker, Kubernetes, Mesos, Weave, Kube, you know, Coros, Tectonic, what have you, and all some combination thereof. 
And so it's actually really good to be able to send a strong signal to the market. This is a technology that's going places that you can trust. And you shouldn't be so confused because here are some things that we believe actually will work well for you. Okay. Well, Alexis, um, I know we're up against time and uh, I want to respect that time. You have uh, touched on a lot of different interesting things. Uh, And for listeners who are more curious about Alexis's positions on certain things, there's a really good post on the new stack called the post Amazon challenge that you wrote, which kind of touches on some of the things about where we are, where we're going and what Weave's position is uh, in that space. So, Alexis, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. And um, yeah, I hope to have you have you back on Software Engineering Daily sometime in the future. Thank you very, very much, Jeff. I really appreciate it.